We had a, a break last week from 1 John, so I want to go back and kind of touch on the content of chapter 1 just in a couple of movements so that we understand what he's getting at in chapter 2 and, and verses 1 and 2. Okay, so if you have uh, the book of 1 John open up, probably all of chapter 1 and 2 fits on one pane if you have a paper Bible. And look back at chapter 1, kind of how he opens up. Verses 1 through 4, John gets at something very particular, something incredibly important, and it's the, the, basically the reality that Jesus existed. Look back at that first couple of verses. He says, we've heard it, we've seen it with our eyes, we've looked upon it, and we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And so he's fundamentally, fundamentally getting at the point that Jesus really existed. He was not merely an idea, he was not merely just kind of this, this guise of reality, but he actually existed. He had this tactile experience. He was able to reach out and to touch, to hear. He experienced him in the flesh. And so one through four really kind of gets at the idea that Jesus is real, he did exist, and on the basis of his existence then, there should be something uh, decidedly different about who we are. Namely, he gets in and says, we have fellowship with God on the basis of Christ's real existence. And then he moves into 1, 5 through 10, and he begins to explore the realm of kind of what is the character of God and the basis of, of what the character of God, what then does that say about who we need to be? So in verse 5, he says, we've written these things to you, and, and then he says, God is light. Everybody say, God is light. He says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness, no none at all. So he's getting at the point, he wants them to understand, he wants us to understand that God is complete and utter, supremely moral, that he is moral perfection, that in him there is no deficiency, that in him there is no weakness, that in him there is no malice, that in essence, if we look at those around us, and so I look at my wife, I look at my family, I look at other good people that I know, and I say, they're kind of like God, John would write and say, no, you don't get it. God is completely and utterly perfect. So everyone we look at and we say that they're kind of approaching uh, God and, and kind of who they are and how kind they are and how righteous they are, he would say, no. While this should be the trajectory of their lives, God is wholly different. And his holiness mandates that he is pure, 100%. So he is complete and utter moral purity. And God is light and in him there is no darkness. So John begins to kind of unfold what that looks like. Since God is light, since God has no darkness in him whatsoever, that kind of creates, in some sense, a problem for us. Why? Because we are not light, and in us there is much darkness, yes, a whole lot. Amen? I mean, this is kind of true of us. So Paul in Ephesians 2 says that we were dead in our flesh and we liked it. We were spiritually dead. We were kept far from God. And so we recognize there's a real problem there. And some of the people have handled the problem in verse 8. We find that some of the people say, it's no real problem, you see, because sin doesn't exist. It's this kind of silly notion that sin doesn't exist. So we, what, what we find in these people in line with chapter 1 and verse 8 that says, I have no sin. It says they deceive themselves. The truth isn't in them. They deny in some sense what Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, that in Adam all have sinned. The truth of the Bible communicates to us that all of humanity is fallen. All of humanity is in desperate need of redemption, whether they believe it or not, whether they see it or not. So there are those that simply look at the situation, they look at the problem, they say, sin doesn't exist, sin's not a real issue. 
And then there are those in verse 10 who look at it and say, I have not sinned. So sin may be real, but I have not personally sinned. And this is what Paul says about them. He says in, 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 in Romans as well, he says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then John writes it this way. He says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word isn't in us. So we recognize that God is completely and utterly morally pure. That we're not, and on the basis of this, we need some help. We need some assistance. And John, in some sense, is giving that to us in chapter 2, 1 and 2. Let me read it, and then we'll walk through it. He writes, it says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation of our sins, and not only ours, but also the sins of the whole world. And so we get into this, and, and, and what I want you to see in some sense is this shift. There's this radical shift in address from chapter 1 to beginning in chapter 2. It's been we, it's been us, and it's been you. And this is kind of how he's moved through this. But what happens when you call little kids over to you? All right, if you're going to tell a story and so you call children over to you, man, they gather around. One thing I know about kids is they have no sense of personal space, right? So they're all up in your business. Some adults never learn this, but kids, for the most part, it's okay. And so they have no sense of personal space, so they're all right up in your business, kind of sitting in your lap, draped all over you. And so in this, when he says, in some sense, my little children, he is inviting them in. There's this incredible intimacy spelled out with this change in application, this change in reference, kind of who he's talking to. And so he invites us in. So to you today, John is saying, my little children, he's asking us to lean in. He's asking us to put our ear up close. He's asking us to pay careful attention to what follows. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you. And that's all the content of chapter one thus far. Jesus existed. God is holy and pure. We are not. We need help. That's kind of moving through that. That's what he's talking about. I'm writing these things to you, and look what he says here, so that you might not sin. This is curious. Simple reading of this, you kind of blow through this, and you say, hold up, hold up now. Are you telling me that if I read and applied 1-1 through 1-10 that I could live my life sinless? Are you, like, because it seems like that's what he's saying, and man... I have not gotten this over the course of my life. My wife will attest to it. My husband will attest to it. My kids for sure will attest to it. I have not been able to be sinless. Any sinless people in the house, raise your hand. Just me. Okay. So moving through this, what we see is that's clearly not what John's trying to say. Right? That's clearly not what he's going to say. Why? One, our experience shows us that isn't true. And two, the rest of the testimony of Scripture communicates to us that we are always a people desperately in need of redemption. So what exactly is John getting at? See, that what John's getting at is he's seeking to refute this ideology. He's seeking to refute this idea that comes out of the false teachers there in the city that he dwells. These people said that sin, does, sin isn't real, and they haven't personally sinned. So what John wants us to understand, what he's inviting us by using this, this, this name of my little children, he's inviting us in. He said, you need to understand these things. Don't sin in one of these two ways. Don't sin by saying, that, quite simply, that sin doesn't exist, that it's kind of out there, that it's not real, that it's not personal. And also, don't sin in this regard by saying, I have not personally sinned. Don't do this. Because to do either one of these two things necessarily means that you look at God and say, I do not need redemption. 
I do not need help. I can have a relationship with you on my own. And the totality of scripture from beginning to end paints the picture and gives us this ready assurance that that is not true. We are in desperate need of redemption. And that's a good thing. We can't do it on our own. And that admission is a good thing. So John wants, in some sense, to awaken them to the reality that the struggle with sin is real. One of the great misfortunes and kind of failings in, in some sense of the church and discipleship is leading people to believe that, that, that they can have complete and utter mastery and perfection in this life. And that's a miserable way to live. It's a miserable way to live. Why? Because we get into it, right? And one of two things happens. Either we begin to see sin actually show up and be present in our lives, and on the basis of that, we feel decidedly unloved by God. Or we begin to recognize sin show up in our lives, and and we say, nobody else can hear this, nobody else can know this, and so we begin to hide it from everybody we encounter. We're hypocrites. But we feel like that's what's expected of everybody. We feel like that's what's expected of everybody. So John, in this sense, isn't saying that you can be completely and utterly perfect. He's in some sense inviting us in and say, recognize your weakness and don't sin in one of these two ways, which if this is how you sin, then you don't see it as an issue. So he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But then he calls us in. He says, but if anyone does sin. And we say, oh. For 30 seconds or so there, we were stuck on this and say, how am I supposed to live? But he makes it into this freeing expression. But if anyone does sin and we feel the relief coming up. See, John has already alluded to this in chapter 1 and verse 9, where he wrote and told us that if we confess our sins, speaking of Jesus, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is cleansing that takes place in the heart of the Christian after you come to know Jesus. And this cleansing is continual. And it's on the basis of your continued need and confession before God through the person of Jesus. Amen? So he writes, he says, if anyone does confess, look what he says here. He says, we have an advocate. Everybody say, I have an advocate. advocate. You have an advocate. I mean, this is good news for you. But the difficulty, I think, when we come into this is our understanding of the basis of what advocacy is. So when you make a mistake and you do something wrong, what we tend to do is we call some friend of ours. We say, I'm in a jam. I'm in a tight fix. I'm in a pickle, right? Or however, however you and your friends engage. I've never, none of my friends have ever said that, but I imagine that's something that you could say to your friends. And so maybe you're in this tight pinch. You're in this fix. And so you call them. You say, Jimmy, I don't know what to do. This is the problem. This is the situation I've got going on. Now, I feel some sense of relief going to the pig farmer and saying, I've got this problem. I'm not sure what to do with this. That On the basis of this one-off going to him, that he's going to help me. Right? And so I go to him and I say, James, I've got an issue. I've got a problem. James says, well, Matt's never called me before. And so I'm going to help him. And he expends some energy and some effort. And maybe it costs him something financially. But he helps me. So the next time a problem rolls around, I'm, I'm tempted to go back and I think, oh, I'm going to go to James, I'm going to go to James again, and James hears, and, and I go to him, and he's, he's not just as excited as he was the first time to help me. 
So the third time rolls around, and I've got this same issue, this sin that I can't just get rid of. And I think I could go to Jimmy, or I could go to James. Well, you know what? James is a little cold. He's a little distant. He's a little remote the last time I went to him. I wonder what Susan's doing. I could call his wife. Oh, but they probably talk. I don't want to do that. And so I'm going to go to Steve. And so what I find myself in that sense doing is what? I'm looking for an advocate who's willing to hear my story. And my understanding is that my advocacy in James or in anyone else wanes with the more problems I have. And so their advocacy for me gets tired. They get weary. Why? Because I'm fallen. I'm a need. And I'm a needy person. But I look at them and I say, they're a needy ter- person too. And, and they don't want to hear my problems. So I begin to think of the ag- advocacy of God in that term. And God doesn't want to hear my problems. He doesn't want me going before him. He grows weary of me struggling with the same issue. Or maybe in advocacy, you watch a lot of kind of law and order type deals, and so you've seen one or two court-appointed attorneys. What does this guy look like? What does this lady look like? Right, it's kind of a mustard stain right here. Not real excited to be doing business with you. They roll in, they're like, let me see, uh, you stabbed a guy 57 times and uh, claiming innocence. You're like, I, I, I have a speeding ticket? I don't, oh yeah, you. But did you thought about stabbing a guy 57 times? And so we recognize on a basis of this, he's only marginally interested. He's having to do this as some type of assignment. He's having to do this because nobody else is willing. It's just a job. He doesn't care to do it. He's not captivated in it. There's no compassion in him. And so we're tempted, too, to see this in Jesus. That Jesus is this advocate who grows weary of our coming to him. That Jesus is this advocate who's just doing the job he's forced to do. Look what he says here. He says, we have an advocate with the Father. In the book of Hebrews, there's this stunning display of the power of this advocate, starting in verse 24. Speaking of Jesus, he says, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is who Jesus is. Jesus is saved. He stands at the right hand of the throne of God on high. And you come to him with your issues. You come to him with your problems. And he always longs to make intercession for you. So you come to him and you say, God, I've got an addiction to pornography. God, I've got an addiction to pride. God, I've got an addiction to covetousness. God, I've got an addiction to lying. God, I've got an addiction to being good and being liked. I want to be recognized as being good. I want to be recognized as being liked by people. I don't want to be seen as an awful jerk. So we go to Jesus over and over and again with these things, and what we recognize is that his advocacy knows no end. It is not vested and wearied by our sin. Hebrews tells us he always lives to make intercession for them. Why? For indeed it was fitting that we should have a great high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Why? Since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. Jesus, our great high priest, is perfect Much as God is light and in him there is no darkness, Jesus is totally perfect. In him there is no deficiency. This great high priest stands 
always ready to offer intercession for you. So you find yourself in the midst of sin and you go to your advocate. You find yourself in the midst of sin and instead of covering it up and masquerading in light, we go to our advocate who is holy and innocent and blameless and is always ready and willing to intercede. So what we do in the midst of a failure to confession is to look into Jesus and say, you're a terrible advocate I don't want to use you. You're a terrible advocate. I don't want to use you. I think you're unaffected. I think you're unwilling. But what we see is this completely contrary to the nature of who he is. Verse 28 in the book of Hebrews chapter 7 says, For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. We have an advocate, and he is perfect. The advocacy of Jesus is absolutely perfect. And so when we find ourselves in the midst of sin, which stupefies, which blinds, which distracts, we have the ability instantaneously to go to our advocate. And, and John continuing to describe him, he says he is Jesus Christ, the appointed Messiah of God. This is the degree of the awesomeness of the advocacy God goes to bat for you. Recognize this. The advocacy of Jesus on your behalf was set up before everything and anything was created. We see this in John. We see this in 1 John. The incarnate Son of God precedes everything. Before your birth, before your parents caught that sparkle in each other's eye, and out you pop. Before all of these things, Jesus stood ready to intercede for you. Before all of these things, before your sin, in the midst of your sin, and after your sin, Jesus stands ready to be an intercessor, to be an intercessor for you, to be an advocate for you. This amazing love that God extends to you, that his son stands to be an intercessor for those who stiff arm him and stay far away from him. Do you see the love of God in this passage? Jesus, the righteous branch of David, spoke about in Jeremiah 23, 5, his righteousness covering us. So when God looks down in the midst of Jesus' advocacy, this is what we see. We see the robe of Christ's righteousness spread over us. It is not our righteousness. It is his that is borrowed for our good. She may look at this and say, man, I am so sorry, but... Like, I have friends that are good enough to have an advocate like that, but that's not me. You don't know me. You don't know the mistakes of my past. You don't know the mistakes of my present. You don't know my disregard. You don't know my apathy. So you look at your life and you say, I am absolutely unworthy of that advocacy. You're right. You're absolutely unworthy. And so am I. And so is Jimmy. And so is James. And so is every single man and woman and child in this room. Understand this. If your understanding of who God is and understanding of who Jesus is hinges on the worthiness of yourself to receive him as an advocate, then you completely misunderstand. It is so freeing to stand before a holy God and know this. You are unworthy. And that's the point. We fall down at his feet. We cry out unworthy. 
The image that comes to my mind, albeit somewhat comical, stems from Wayne's World. Do you remember it? Wayne's World, you have Wayne, you have Garth. They're in the middle of all these deals, and anytime their hero comes into the room, they bow, bow down on the floor, and they cry out over and over again, we're unworthy, we're unworthy. One that sticks in my mind is when Alice Cooper comes in. And they're like, Alice Cooper, we're unworthy, we're unworthy. And what does Alice Cooper do? He's like, that's right, stay down. You are unworthy. What does Jesus do? He makes us stand. In the midst of all our understandings, we're not recognized as being unworthy. He recognizes the fact on the basis of our deficiency, and he calls us to stand, and he drapes us in his righteousness, thereby making us worthy. Jesus Christ, the righteous, stands ready to intercede, to be an advocate for you. Look what verse 2 says. It says, he is the propitiation for our sins. Now, what John in here is invoking this Leviticus 16 language. We see two things happen in Leviticus 16. Aaron, the high priest, goes in, he offers a sacrifice for himself, and then he goes in and he offers a sacrifice for the people. He takes this goat and he slits his throat and it bleeds out. That is the propitiation, right? So that's propitiation. The wrath of God is coming to the people, and this goat stands in, and so he bleeds it out. And then he goes out, and he lays his hands on another goat. He lays its hands on its head, and he begins to confess the sins of the people on this goat, and then they send it out of the camp. That's expiation. Propitiation means that wrath is coming, and someone has to pay the toll of that wrath. Expiation says we can just dismiss, we can wipe away sin. In Jesus, we see him as the propitiation of our sins. In John 3 and in John 12, we see this over and again. Those who refuse, who stand far from God and don't receive his forgiveness, are currently under condemnation. Christian, Christian, if you sit here today and you believe in the name of the Son of God, you have cried out to be saved. You have asked him to come in and to redeem you. You have believed that he sent his son Jesus to die on behalf of your sins, to be raised three days later. And you believe on this and you have confessed your sins before him and you're walking in faith, keeping in line with repentance. Then you, for you, there is no condemnation. Do you understand this? So in the midst of sin, what you do is confess. In the midst of sin, what you do is turn back to him. In the midst of sin, you cry out to your advocate. But lost person, men and women, I don't, like, I don't know who you are, but if you're in this room today and you say, I don't have a relationship with Jesus, I'm far off from him, I don't need him. There is no one to stand in the gap. There is no one to receive the wrath of God for you. You have no advocate. Your goodness does not measure up. So the wrath of God finds you in your lostness. It finds you in your brokenness. It finds you in your refusal to humble yourself before him and to cry out with your need for him. For the Christian, the good news is that Jesus has stepped in and he has received the wrath of God for us. It's not that we are good enough and God finally said, you know what, she's a pretty good old girl. I'm just gonna let this one slide. From the best of us to the worst of us, from the murderous wretch to the good person that always mows their neighbor's lawn, all of us, each and every one, stand in ready need of redemption. And the free extension of grace from God by the agency of his son, Jesus Christ, extends to all of us. This is what John says. He's the propitiation for our sins. This calls us to love him. But look at this amazing extension of grace here at the end. He says, not only ours, but also the sins of the whole world. 
Now, D.A. Carson, commentator, theologian at Trinity, he makes the point, and I think this is worth noting. You read through John, you read through 1 John, when he gets into this discussion of the world, our initial understanding is to think massive expanse, right? Tons and tons of people. But for the most part, when John is moving in and describing world, he's talking about brokenness, sinful, and terrible. And so there's this understanding of light and good and God, and then there's this understanding of seediness, awfulness, terribleness, world. So we see the light, we see the world. In 1 John 2, 2, we see both of those put together. So Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, if you're here, if you have believed in the name of Jesus, the only Son of God, if you've called upon his name in line with Paul in Romans 10, 13, that you may be saved. If this is who you are, recognize that he is your propitiation. But the amazing nature of this is it also extends to the world. So it's not just numerically an amazing thing to think about. Think about all the terrible people you know. The amazing thing about God's love for us and the willingness of the son to take on the punishment for the world, we like to think that it extends to marginally bad people, right? People that may or may not cheat on their taxes, people that may or may not cheat on their spouses, people that may or may not speed. I'm not talking about the five miles per hour over that we understand as a regular buffer, but people that go like 13, right? That is a real thing, Brandon, right? And so we understand that, that, he, that, he's, that he's talking about not just those people. He's talking about doctors that work in abortion clinics. He's talking about militant members of ISIS. He's talking about people that perform euthanasia. He's talking about people engaged in the sex trade. He's talking about those of us who are so concerned with our own safety that we're unwilling to open our doors to let other people in. He finds each and every one of us in our brokenness, far removed from God. All those we're willing to look at and say, they are so out there, we don't want them anywhere near us. He's the propitiation for your sins, for my sins. But he's also the propitiation for their sins. This is what this means. Every, every man, woman, and child you meet is able to be redeemed. This means a couple things to us. It means if you're a Christian, you know this to be true, and you know that every person you meet outside of having a relationship with God can't be saved, it means every single person you meet needs to hear that message. Amen? And it means that every single person that doesn't hear and positively respond to that message is separated from the love of God for all eternity. But also, it drives us to be incredibly gracious because we recognize the distinction, the dividing line of humanity isn't Republican and Democrat, Libertarian and Green Party, none of these things. It's the redeemed and the lost. And the mission of the redeemed is to seek and save the lost through the power of Jesus, the equipping of the Spirit, working in, hopefully, their confession. Let me pray for us.
Father, we would pray for our boldness and witness. We pray for our compassion and the extension of grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for those who have yet to submit themselves to the love of your Son. That Jesus for them is not propitiation for their sins. They stand under judgment now. So God, I pray that for them that they would cry out to be saved. That they would cry out for faith. That they would cry out in confession and repentance. God, that you would allow them to walk in newness of life. God, I pray for those of us who are waning and who are struggling, that we would recognize the assurance that we have in Jesus, this strong and steady advocate who longs to make intercession. We have him today as an advocate. We have him yesterday in the midst of our sin and struggles. We have him tomorrow. Our assurance and surety rest in the strength of our Savior. So God, help us to rest in that. Help us to be gracious with one another who are struggling. I pray your spirit would come and make application in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.